morning. I uh, used to be five feet seven and a half, and now I'm five feet four. After the introduction on humility, I feel like I'm five feet. And then when he told me that Moses was miserable, I'm about four or five right now. <laughs> so, so, a humble pie flying all over the place this morning with the scriptures. And turn me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> we just simply have six verses today. I'm gonna, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to read from verse 6 to verse 15, not 16. Just for the sake of getting a little bit of context. Sermon's title today is Watching Your Life for God. Starting at verse 6. If you point out these things, or point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Brought up in the truths of the faith and of good teaching that you have followed, having nothing to do with godless myths or old wise tales, rather train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, labor, and Strive, or for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through the prophet or prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give holy yourself holy to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I was thinking that a little illustration on literally, you could say, the style of Paul, how he writes Timothy, is to a certain extent as a parent or parents on the day that their children go off to college. Now, Parents always care for their children, but I can only imagine that that day of college where their children are going to drive away and they begin the process of being empty nesters is quite emotional. And as they are speaking to their child, maybe they're twins, let's make it more dramatic. They're twins and they're both going off to college and the house will be quiet as soon as they leave. So what happens? Mom and dad are speaking to them, and they've got about 10 minutes left. So what do they do? Very much like Paul. Going to pack an awful lot of advice in a small little letter or a short 10 minutes speaking to their kids. 
Watch out, don't walk alone, they'll say to their daughter. Always go with a friend. There's a young boy. Don't you dare go to too many parties and remember what the Bible says, bad company corrupts good morals. And so they give them a list as long as the day is long, and they gave more advice in 10 minutes than they did the previous two months before the kids left. And that's how Paul is actually treating Timothy here. Oh, this is a bromance. An older man with a younger man. They met about 12 years earlier, before 63 AD, when this letter was written, upon Paul leaving prison for the first time. When he writes Timothy, he sends him to Ephesus in order that the things might be put in order there as a young pastor. And it is a... I can only imagine when I was uh, first uh, a state employee, I was put in E-block of the state prison system. It's the worst block in the whole state of Connecticut and probably around 1983. You just don't do that, but they did it to me. What you don't want to do really is put a fresh minted, freshly minted pastor into a church where there is false teachers, and yet Paul did it. It shows how much trust he had in Timothy confidence by this time the things that Paul had said to Timothy up to this point before we start actually verse 12 are this Paul has been giving Timothy instruction in how to conduct himself and how the church is to conduct itself in corporate worship Paul has instructed Timothy in the proper use of the law he's done it in also in relationship to corporate worship and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. He's laid down the standards for eldership and also for deacons and what the requirements are. He's also uh, articulated the role of both men and women and what is required of all of us within the church. And Paul desires to come soon. I can only imagine that he was thinking about the false teacher situation that he had to correct while he was there. How is he doing? This sermon is um, separated by three different distinctions. The first is watch your life. The second is watch your doctrine. And the third is watch your gift. Watching your life, you see it in verse 12 and also in verse 16. Watching your doctrine, you see it also in verse 13 and also verse 16. And then watching your gift, you find in verses 14 and 15. This is an easy alliteration. They are not always easy to alliterate. But watch your life. Paul says in verse 6, In pointing out these things to the brethren, as we just read, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. That's all Paul wants Timothy to be, is a good servant. That's all we can actually ask of our own selves. We're really not that important, you know. We're just not. Whether you're a leader or not, we're not that important. I want to hear, I know you want to hear, well done, good and faithful ser- servant, at the moment I lose consciousness. That's what I want to hear. Not that I have either had a good sermon 
or a good ministry, whether had a good family. Yes, those things are very important. But my goodness, we are really not that important at all when you consider that God is the one who's on the throne. When we start verse 12, we see Paul's first teaching. It says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. I fail every single one of those. Dr. Robert Morey said, old theologian, gone now. I guess I live long enough now to listen to old theologians and now new ones. If you hang around me long enough, I'll violate your rights and I'll offend you. At the end of the day, I can only promise you that you'll recognize that I'm a sinner saved by grace just like you. No matter how important position that you have within the church of God. The phrase, though, here, and I'm going to read it from the New American Standard, in speech, in other words, he says, Timothy must be an example of godliness. That's the overall context in chapter 4 at the beginning to the middle here. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Conduct is replaced with life uh, from the New American Standard to the NIV. All those are very difficult to apprehend, even as you grow in grace. The Apostle Paul uses, the, or I should say the, the interpreters of the New American Standard uses the word show yourself in order that might emphasize the action of Timothy. You have to be an example before the body. You're now a young elder. Watch yourself. Watch your life. And he gives him the specifics, right? Watch your speech. Watch your conduct. Watch your uh, love. Watch your faith. And watch your purity. And so that is... very. By the way, very much like the qualifications for an elder... Every single one of those qualifications you read in chapter 3 are all about character. Every one, except for being able to teach. So, God is consistent in his word. Timothy must be an example. There are others who are going to look up to him. This is not, verse 10 says, by the way, this is apprehended through labor and striving. This godliness you don't get to be godly in life from reading your Bible in the morning, maybe a chapter and just before you go to bed and you have no other interaction with God in prayer, in meditation, in anything that are part of the means of grace that God has given us. It's labor and it's striving for an elder, it's even more. The Greek word here for example, by the way, for Timothy that Paul uses is to uh, the striking of a die, a stamp, and a scar. We're all struck like a die as image bearers of God. When God saves us, he places his Holy Spirit within you and I, and we are now to be godly and act like Christ. It's not a complex um, biblical doctrine to understand what God requires of us. And therefore, he strikes us you could say, with the die that casts the image of Christ within us through the Spirit. 
A scar. An example is like a scar. A scar, by the way, lasts a long time. It, in fact, my scars last a lifetime. I have a scar right down here on my left leg. I call it the Alex Tibbet scar. There's a whole big story behind that scar. Uh, I blame him for giving it to me. On the other hand, he would probably say no, but there's a story behind it. And that scar stays with me for the rest of my life. And so is not the marks of Christ and then him telling us to take up our own cross and following him the mark of a scar that Christ says we must appropriate to our own selves. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but the life I now live, I live according to the faith in the Son of God. I've been scarred by him. My life will never be the same since he saved me. Can you say that? It's never been the same. Part of this backdrop is based on the watching of the life, the watching of the doctrine, and the watching of the gifts. Because when you watch your gifts, and you're watching your life, and what you believe, you're watching yourself. You're watching whether you're meeting the standards that God has given us in godliness and righteousness and truth. This is what he requires of us. We know Christ is the greatest example in speech. No one ever spoke like him, right? He's the greatest example in conduct and in life, NIV, because no one found fault with him. He's the greatest example in love because no one died a death like him, God dying on a cross for me, for you. His faith was like a mountain. He submitted to the Father perfectly, and you and I never will. He also is the greatest example in purity. He said, which one of you convicts me of sin and no one could? Paul is saying to Timothy, be an example in Christ and of Christ. If you want to be a teacher, you must be an example. But it's not limited to Timothy. It's for all of us. From this point on, Paul literally gives a list of directives just like the parents saying goodbye to their teenage kids. And he's going to say a lot in just a few verses. In fact, the entire letter, I think it was Pat that said several weeks ago before I went on vacation, he counted 35 imperatives, commands. Could you imagine giving your kids 35 commands to, within a 10-minute period before they go off to college? I don't know. It may not turn out very well. So watch your life, he says, in speech and in conduct, life and faith and purity. Now the second one is watch your doctrine. We see that in verse 3, 13, and verse 16, right? Verse 13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. This is a command specifically related to actually how the church is to function. And Timothy is the one that's going to make it happen. This is for public worship. But by the way, we do this every day. We did it today. We're following after actually what they did in the synagogues, but the church was even formed. Jesus, when he went back to his own hometown, what did he do? He read the scriptures. I believe it was Isaiah 63. Correct me if I'm wrong. 
61. Gary George corrected me. Thank you. I asked for it. But until I come, give attention to the public reading of scriptures. It's important for us. Now we ask the question, what was available to Timothy to read? Well, we know for sure the Old Testament, the early church, heavily depended on the Old Testament, especially before the first letter of the book of Galatians was written. But by 63 AD, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Acts, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians were available. And, of course, the Old Testament. Listen to Colossians 4.16. I love how, you know, the Bible... The Bible teaches itself to you and I, right? We don't have to make up anything. Colossians 4.16 says this, And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming to Laodicea. Sometimes these are referred to as circular letters. By the way, this also heavily implies that Timothy and others in that early 1st century, 63 AD, were already accepting Paul's apostolic letters as inspired by God. You don't pass around an uninspired letter. You may pass it around to a couple people. You know, if Seth wrote a letter to me, I'd say, well, maybe Joyson could read it, but I wouldn't let anybody else in the congregation read it. It wouldn't be that big of a deal, right? But an inspired letter by an apostle, take notice. Take notice. It's from God. So he says, watch your doctrine, your life and your doctrine in verse 16. Do you see that? He's giving instruction on truth in verse 13. Right? He's saying, give attention to the public reading of uh, of Scripture, to teaching and to preaching. The New American Standard uses the word exhortation for teaching. You get down to verse 16. Watch watch your life and doctrine closely. Number two. So watch your teaching. Well, we're reading it. What else goes on within a church? And I believe, actually, this is one of the reasons why much of the church has fallen right flat on its face is that they have not followed the tradition of expository preaching, which this text is literally telling us to do. Expository preaching is the reading of the text, the exhortation and the teaching of the text, and then the explanation of the text. Expect for me to give some application throughout the sermon and maybe a final application at the end of the sermon. I'm being consistent with the Word of God in terms of what we're supposed to do at Sovereign Grace Chapel, but... I don't know if you've ever listened to any liberal preachers out there recently. I listen to every once in a while just to see what is up to date on what they're saying. And uh, it's pretty disheartening. They believe in eisegesis rather than exegesis. What's eisegesis? Reading into the text. So you got a liberal worldview, you read into the text. It makes it look like you read the Bible, and maybe you're reading the Bible. But then you're reading in your worldview into the Bible. Rather than exegesis, is expository, expository teaching prevents you from actually skirting the tough doctrines of the Bible. Although I think we're pretty bold in the tough doctrines of the Bible in this church. 
to talk about the sovereignty of God and heaven and hell. How's that? That word exhort, by the way, in verse 13, or teach, literally can mean also to warn, to admonish, to advise, and to encourage. It's not just teaching. We shouldn't be surprised in 2 Timothy 3.16. We hear probably half of you have this verse memorized. 3.16.17, all Scripture is inspired by God for what? For it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In other words, my teaching and preaching today is for you to equip you for the work of ministry, Ephesians 4. This is not something to say, oh, it wasn't that nice today, and then we leave and we go have a birthday cake, right? No, it's much more than that. And recognize that Paul says to Timothy, all of Scripture is God-breathed. That's the word inspired. The presupposition of liberal churches today is basically not that. Thank God this church has been going on for over 30 years to where we still believe in the inspired text, that we must submit to the inspired text. We don't read into that text, but it teaches us how to live in life and in doctrine and also, finally, in the use of your gifts. This is the goal of your leaders, by the way, all three of these. Hebrews 13, verse 7, has a great parallel here. And remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their contact, conduct, imitate their what? Faith. Faith. I can't throw a ball as far as I can anymore. I used to play baseball. Don't imitate my baseball skills any longer but imitate my faith as far as it can carry you I can tell you I've been a Christian for over 40 years I gotta have something to share with you on that right 40 years of survival declaring the name of Christ in public and being called every name in the book I can tell you a little bit I know people can tell you more in verses 14 through 16, these verses have a common element. That is, we are examining ourselves in light of the Scriptures. Right? You examine your life. How do you examine your life? You examine your life through the Scriptures. That's right. By the way, this is all labor-intensive. Timothy, it's labor-intensive. By the way, for you, it's labor-intensive. I'm going to challenge you really soon about spiritual laziness. It's easy to deceive ourselves and depend on ourselves rather than God. Only the men and women of faith who are not deceived by their own pride can actually progress because Paul's going to actually talk to Timothy about progression in a very short period of time. But in verse 14, he says in the final uh, alliteration is this. Watch your gift. Let's reread it. Verse 14. 
Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. We easily could have said this today when we laid hands on him. I want to see progress. Be diligent and do not neglect your gift. Do not. Paul laid his hands on Timothy and confirmed the passing of that spiritual gift in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. Paul says, I am sure, in 2 Timothy, that it is in you. What is that in you? It's a sincere faith. If Seth didn't have a sincere faith, we never, ever, ever would have actually recommended him to you, let alone laid hands on him. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands which you just witnessed. The word afresh here, the NIV uses the word fan the flame. Fan it, Seth. Fan it, Gary and Pat and Todd. Even the deacons fan the flame of the gift that God has given you. But this is not limited to the eldership and the deacons. This is fanning the flame. Every single one of you when you were saved was given at least one gift. Every one of you. For the common good. That's for all of us in the body of Christ. The word fresh literally means to rekindle and to stir up. Fan it. Make it Make it like a fire. You know how a fire, if it's, if it's dying down and it's low on oxygen, you either open the vent or you start fanning it a little bit and that oxygen gets there. And you do the same thing with the spiritual gift that God has given you. You'd think, well, you know, you just sit in your chair and you say, oh, Holy Spirit, I say this reverently, oh, Holy Spirit, use my gift today. Oh, no, there's a human element to this so very much fan the gift we shouldn't be surprised you fan it through the word of God you fan it through going to church and actually hearing the word of God read spoken exhorted preached taught it's one of the reasons why we go because it brings us to a place where we glorify God in our life in our doctrine and yes in our gifts Interesting, the Greek word here actually implies repetitiveness. By the way, you fan the flame of your gift over and over and over again. By the way, if you don't, you might end up being getting stale, moldy. Yeah, moldy. It's a good way to describe it, isn't it? But in verse 14, let's reread it for emphasis. Do not neglect your gift. Now, this is said in a positive sense for Timothy. He didn't send a young pastor to Ephesus to actually uh, fan the flame of his gift because he hasn't been doing it very well for the past, say, five years. No, 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 no. He trusts in Timothy. He sends him there, but he's exhorting him, fan the flame of your gift all over again and do it repetitively. And he says, don't neglect it. Interesting word. 
Don't be careless with it. That's what it means. Listen to Hebrews 2.3. Same Greek word. Really, really fits into the overall understanding of watching our life. By the way, we have life because God saved us. He poured it into us, right? I actually uh, paraphrased uh, this. It was pretty long. But it uh, comes out the same way, definition-wise and understanding. Hebrews 2.3. We must pay more careful attention to what we have heard so we don't drift away. How shall we escape punishment if we ignore such a great salvation? You know what that's saying? You be careful with your salvation, let alone your gift. And I'll tell you, if you're not fanning the flame of your gifts, you might harm all the things God did with you from the very beginning of God's uh, giving of you in conversion experience. I don't know about you, but I, I, I can count on this one hand, at least right now, rare, very quickly, people I know who have lived a stale life. I, I have some friends from my first church never went to church after the split. Ever. And they still have the gifts of the grace of God that God gave them. But they're not using them. They're not fanning with them, fanning them. And by the way, they have been careless with them. Careless. Both should accompany one another. Our gifts tells the world in this church, I am so happy God saved me. I have to use my gift. And in salvation, oh, I discover my gift. Lord, teach me how to use it. In verse 15, he uses the word diligent. They both play on one another here. Don't neglect, but be diligent, right? The word diligent here literally means to take pains. That is, to give yourself wholly to them. Be absorbed in them. And that includes, I believe, all the truths he's given since the beginning of chapter 4. The Greek for the word diligent is to put to mind, to meditate, to imagine. Timothy is to meditate upon the inspired words of Paul. He puts to mind the virtues of his life and his calling, watching himself using his spiritual gifts to teach and preach, imagining himself to be an example like Paul, fulfilling the purposes of God in him. Timothy is useful for the kingdom of God. You go to I think it's First Timothy chapter 2. There's a text that talks about wood, hay, and stubble, right? And gold and silver. Some are useful to the master and others aren't. So we use our gifts. 1 Corinthians twelve seven says this. It's in direct opposition to many charismatic doctrine. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's for the body of Christ. It's not personally for you. Not at all. And it's not about you. It's about the work of the Spirit in you to glorify God in Christ. So Paul says, watch your life. Watch your doctrine. Watch your gifts. Look what he says. To also, let me just go actually to the text. Look at verse, the second half of verse 16. Well, we'll read the whole verse. Watch 
watch your life and your doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's a high responsibility. I mean, how does a pastor save himself, by the way? He saves himself from ill repute. He saves himself. One of the requirements of a pastor is to have a good reputation amongst the world. You'll lose your reputation quickly if you neglect the gifts that are in you. If you neglect your salvation, you will, you will ruin yourself because you've been careless. And I can guarantee you, if we took a poll, probably half of you know of careless friends, Christian friends of yours who've been careless in the faith. Paul says, if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister. I requoted verse 6 because this is for you. You're the brothers and the sisters. This is Timothy's congregation. And yes, through your faith, your godliness, that's an overall catching phrase, by the way, or word. If you are viewed from God as a godly person, you're walking like Christ. You're using your gifts. You're watching your life. And through your faithfulness and your godliness and your fear of God, that's important, by the way, even though it's not mentioned here, you prove yourselves to God in His saving work in you and also showing to the world the grace of God that saves the ungodly. Every teacher will fall short, by the way, being an example, a godly example. But we do one thing that has to be with every leader. I keep pointing you to Christ. I don't point you to me. If I end up becoming an example, glory be to God. But at the end of the day, I point you to Christ. Let's turn back just to finish up. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6 through 8. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of good teaching that you have followed. Having nothing to do with godless myths, he's warning them just like you would warn your children when they're going off to college, right? Have nothing to do with the godless myths and the old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. You know, Jude says this. He says, keep yourself in the love of God. Can you imagine that? God has given us that responsibility. You know, it's easy for us to say, well, it's all up to God whether I fail or I'm successful. That's not it at all. He's called you to strive and labor. And these are the things that come out from it, and that is godliness. Listen to verse 8. For physical training is for some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Everything I have told you today, 
is for this life and the life to come. Everything. If you watch your life, you will be used by God and be one who is called a Christian, who is worthy of his master. If you watch your doctrine and you don't walk in the endless genealogies and the myths and the wives' tales, people will look to you for wisdom. They'll look to you for advice. If you watch your gift and they see you excel within it, and by the way, that's what Paul even said, look for your progress, then you are also profitable for this life and the life to come. My question to you is, have you progressed in the faith? One way to check it out is, do you watch your life every day? Do you watch what you believe every day? Do you watch your gift every day? If you're not using your gift, if you don't know the Bible very well, and you get into trouble all the time, then I can tell you that actually you're not being very faithful. And then God's probably not using you as much as you would want him to do. So examine yourselves. Look in that mirror of the word of God and say to yourself, have I seen progress in the last year, two years, five years? Am I a different person since I've been saved? I may be a little bit shorter for many reasons, but I know I've grown in Christ 40 years later. Not perfectly, but I give glory to him, and it's the reason why we show up here to sing praises to his name all over again every Sunday. And may God bless you with the truths that I've given to you today. Amen. Todd, that was an awful sermon. (laughs) I'm just testing your humility, brother. Um, Praise the Lord. I enjoyed that word muchly. A lot of good exhortations in there. And encourage you to keep reading in 1 Timothy yourself as we will continue uh, in the fifth chapter.